Welcome, everyone, to Pensive Politics with Mr. Watson. I am indeed your host, Christian Watson, and today I have a very special guest with me. I have Nate Hotchman, who is a part of the Young Voices program, as am I. He is also a student at Colorado College, and he is a freelance political writer, just like me as well. Uh, And so we're going to be talking about conservative philosophy, the pandemic, a few things about that, and just really trying to mull over the current state of our political contemporary society. Uh, Nate, how are you doing, my friend? Good, Christian. Thanks for having me, man. As you know, I'm a, I'm a fan of your podcast, so I'm excited to get the chance um, to come on. I, I am humbled by that. I am truly humbled by that. So before we even go into the substance of, of, these, of these complex issues, tell me, how, what, may, what invoked your interest in writing about politics? What invoked your interest in studying philosophy? Because there are not many of us around that do indeed study philosophy. Most folks view it as esoteric and, and needless, but uh, I think that it's quite important. So like, what, what, what invokes your interest in that? Well, I think I've always sort of been interested in, um, in, in philosophy in particular, particularly political philosophy, as I, as I think you have too. Um, you know, it's, it's tough to sort of point to a specific instance, which uh, sort of gives the foundation of explaining why you or I or anyone is particularly attracted to a uh, to a particular field like political philosophy. But I think, um, you know, it's to me, it's it's the opposite of esoteric, right? It, you know, while the way that philosophy is articulated and is expressed sometimes um, might come off as sort of obtuse, if you really take sit mm-hmm. down and take sort of the great philosophers seriously. What they're talking about is the most is of the most sort of foundational importance to what it means to be human and the human condition, and particularly in the realm of politics, uh, the nature of 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 what we're doing when we engage in political activity. So, to me, and maybe this is just because I'm, you know, a nerd, um, the the sort of the nature of of political philosophy is is the opposite of unimportant and obtuse. Um, But you know, as you said, that's a it's a sort of small minority of folks who I think are hold that view. Yeah, so, well, before we, you know, well, let's let's kind of play on that point a little bit because there are some folks who hold the disposition that philosophy, and and, and this tends to be a lot of conservatism incorporated, <laughs> uh, <laughs> that philosophy itself. I, I can't believe I just said that out loud. Yeah, I, <laughs> uh, I can't believe I just said that out loud, but that, but it's, it's it's the truth that philosophy Sound itself. Like <laughs> Oh dear, I can't stand that lady. Anyway, <laughs> but uh, it, it, that it's uh, that it's the it's the idea that since philosophy, in their view, is impractical, it doesn't necessarily translate into the current industrial industrialistic mindset that is so in, in, integral to the STEM studies. Uh, therefore, philosophy is impractical, or not really impractical, but just not really uh, viable for one to seek out if they're trying to survive in modern day society. Uh, I, I, I think this suspicion has been around for a very, for a very, uh, for a very long time. I think long well, past forty years or so. Uh, but do you do you view uh, a lot of conservative thinkers' views on on philosophy as a practical means of accruing value, material, monetary value, of course, because value is more than just monetary. Right. Uh, do you view that th- their views? as a microcosm of the death of intellectualism or the decline of intellectualism in our society, society, or do you simply view it as, uh, as having a purely pragmatist William James-esque view of how one should uh, do uh, conduct their life in society? What do you it's, view it as? It's funny that you mentioned William James and the sort of early progressives and the pragmatists, because that's exactly mm-hmm. what my uh, mind went to when you were talking about this. Um, I think, you know, I don't, I can't necessarily speak to the specific sort of conservative context of 
the you know pragmatist utilitarian view of, of philosophy, but I, I do I do think that philosophy itself is unavoidable, and I think the sort of fantasy of the of the pragmatists who say I'm not interested in philosophy, it's it's removed from reality. I just want to know what works um, is is actually a fantasy, right? So y- you can't avoid the fact that philosophy and debates over morality and ethics and these other things that sort of serve as the foundation of the Western canon, um, you can't avoid the fact that those factor into our political thinking, right? Like if, if the, right. the sort of extreme example of, of the pragmatist point of view is, is, you know, if old people, you know, over the age of 65 are a burden on our welfare system, right? The, the pragmatic thing to do would just be to euthanize everyone over the age of 65 because Indeed. it would solve the issue of welfare. But of course we don't do that because it's deeply immoral and, um, is an affront to the basic ideas of, of human dignity uh, that we in the in Western civilization hold to be of preeminent importance. So the the philosophy is unavoidable, and pretending that it doesn't factor into every political decision that we make, I think, um, is is naive. And so yeah, we all are we all are doing philosophy, regardless Absolutely. of whether or not we'd like to admit it. I think. Absolutely, absolutely. Whenever someone, whenever any professional asks a asks a fundamental question, or even any question about their field, they're doing philosophy. In fact, philosophy is actually very popular right now when when researchers are trying to find out the cure or vaccine for COVID. They are literally going through fundamental medical assumptions and asking more questions about them to find a material solution for a material problem. Mm-hmm. So I mean, it, but it's just it's stunning to me that folks really don't recognize that they see philosophy as these people studying in in a, in a tower, you know, so far removed from daily life, you know, everyday life, and uh, and 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 just not being a practical thing. So yeah, and it's, I, just one more point on that. I think the you know particularly in the realm of science, um, it's it's mm-hmm. interesting to see um, some people justify or sort of view science because it's sort of uh, a world of numerical or rational measurement um, as, as devoid of, of philosophy. And that's obviously not true. Um, right. You know, the, the, Just contrary. Exactly. The, the debates over, you know, bioethics, for example, stem cell testing, uh, of course, you know, abortion and euthanasia, those are all things that have profound moral implications. And where you come down on it um, certainly has to do with your own sort of moral precepts and understandings of of what is right and wrong. So just because something is understandable in terms of scientific measurements or, or numbers or mathematics doesn't mean that it isn't also a, a significant and profound moral question. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I was just I was just not too long ago reading Galileo Galilei's um, dialogue concerning the world mm-hmm. and that entire thing. Uh, so, so literally, well, like one of the, he, he literally founded a model of how we view the universe, how we view the world, how we view the earth. That entire dialogue was philosophical discussion. <laughs> that entire dialogue. So yeah, it's just philosophy is much closer than us than we think. I think. I, I think a lot of folks think. Um, but let's go over to the, the conservatism area of this because political philosophy, I think, is much more. It appears to be more concrete and a little bit more and a little bit more in vogue these days than, uh, say, metaphysics or the nature of time or duality or the tautology or whatever, whatever, whatever sort of uh, other branch of philosophy you want to talk about. You know, political philosophy and ethics, so to so, so to speak. Which may very well be one and the same. I'm not. I'm not quite sure. Um, but these days, I, I observe conservatism in America has undergone a shift. This is not. This is not abnormal for political ideologists to undergo a shift. Of course, um, the progressives of the progressive era 
are not necessarily the same progressives of today, although they, they share a very common foundation. A very, a, a very, uh, a, a, a very sort of incensed view of injustice, or incensed view of 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 what they view to be wrong, or what ha- or, or whatever, and and how that matriculates in, in, in society. Uh, but it's t- it's taken a turn for the end, uh, for the for the worst, I believe. Uh, these days, conservatism, particularly, I would say. Uh, under the current president. I'm not blaming him, but I think that he has something to do with this. I think that his election has something to do with this, even if it's indirect. Uh, seems to be more about nationalism. Seems to be more about populism. Seems to be more about these things, which are external to the core essence of what conservatism typically is. The Edmund Burke conservatism, so to speak. The Roger Scruton conservatism, of course. The the Russell Kirk conservatism. That idea of preserving that which they perceive to be the natural order in that which binds and glues society together. The question I have for you is, do you do you see, do you agree with me that there is a sort of a, a sort of negative reaction or a, a negative uh, synthesis here? Between what conservative conservatism should be and what it truly is, and what conservatism is morphing into right now, and B, if there are folks that 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 view their conservatism as out of step with the current throes of political conservatism, do you think it's well worth it for them to fight? to restore the truth of what conservatism is. And that's a little bit of a broader question for you. I'll ask you, do you view your, uh, if you're a conservative or whatever, do you, would you, or hypothetically, would you view your conservatism or your political ideology as something, if it was, if you knew what it was, but it's not being reflected in reality right now, would you view it as something worth fighting for? So that's a mouthful, but go sure, ahead. Sure, yeah, certainly. I think there's, there's obviously a couple, uh, many different important questions in, in, in what you just asked. But I think you know, I'm different from, I think, a lot of folks in the Young Voices cohort and that I'm a little more sympathetic to some of the nationalist populist critiques of, of uh, the sort of uh, so-called dead consensus of, of 80s fusionist Reaganism than I think a lot of uh, libertarians are. You know, I'm not a libertarian. Um, I am a conservative very much in the Anglo-American sense, which means I, I think that the liberal tradition is worth preserving and that liberty is enormously important. Um, but I do think particularly on, on a, on a uh, sort of level of, of political philosophy, the debates that are happening on the right um, are really healthy and are really important right now. And, and, and they're worth having, uh, not only uh, for you know, the folks who are critical of some of the excesses of, of, of classical liberalism and limited government libertarianism, but also for, for folks who are defenders of, of you know, the libertarian tradition. It's important to continue to hone your ideas and adapt them to the current moment and continue to stay politically and rhetorically relevant um, by, by arguing with people. So I, you know, I think I wrote an article for National Review recently talking about a debate between Milton Friedman and William F. Buckley um, that was back in 1990, uh, where they were arguing about the role of the state using remarkably similar language and concepts and expressing remarkably different uh, philosophical disagreements uh, or remarkably similar philosophical disagreements to, to the ones that are happening on the contemporary, right? So I think it's, at the very least, it, it's it's worth, you know, you said you think it's the, the contemporary right might have taken a turn for the worse. Um, and that might be true in, 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 in a certain context, but these debates have always been happening within the Anglo-American conservative tradition. Sure, um, And sure. it's just the language that we use is, is remarkably similar, even to uh, the way that we were talking about these issues back in in the fifties, even let alone the nineties. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, no. I think that's correct. I think the thing that, again, 
political ideologies tend to shift and ebb and flow with time. Mm-hmm. And with the induction of new thinkers, the induction of new reasoning, so on and so on and so forth, right? Uh, American libertarianism really wasn't formulated, really wasn't codified into existence until the 40s when Rosewood Lane, Isabel Patterson, and Ayn Rand in the same year, within the same few months, 1943, all wrote st- – breathtakingly stunning, in my opinion, uh, books, treatises, political treatises about liberty in the, as it, as it, as it relates to the American condition. That was, that was Lane and that was, and then that was, uh, Patterson. And of course, Iron wrote The Fountainhead, which had to do much more with more broader conceptual philosophical issues, but still rooted into the idea of individualism. And that's when American libertarianism really took off. And of course, it drew on from that very broad tradition of the classical, classical liberalism from Herbert Spencer to John Locke and so on and so forth. Um, but indeed, around the time uh, the, Cold, uh, the Cold War was starting and communism was indeed seen as the Great Plague and the Great Scare and all that kind of stuff, uh, Buckley with National Review synthesized both libertarianism and conservatives with you know, writers like Max Eastman on his payroll and so on and so forth. I think for a while – Ayn Rand was on was was writing for National Review, but they had a split. I think that's I think I think Buckley, that's, that's the Buckley case. famously hated Rand. Um, yeah, she yeah he he hated her, mm-hmm. and he wrote that bad reviews about the Fountainhead. But I think they had before that time he he was okay with her in some senses. But uh, anyway, um, the point I was making was that the. Ever since the concept of the foundation of American libertarianism, there has been indeed this pull, this tug. So my question to you is, in your opinion, what is a, what's the difference between a libertarian, not just in a political sense, but also in a more philosophical sense, because libertarianism also goes into the realms of free law and so on and so forth. A libertarian in both the political and philosophical sense, and a conservative in, in, in strictly the political sense. What do you? What's your? What, what, what's the difference there? Because Russell Kirk viewed libertarians very badly. Several other political, like conservative thinkers, viewed libertarians in a very bad light. So, what, what say you? So, I think the first point that's, that's interesting to acknowledge is you talked about libertarianism in the American context having its foundations in the '40s with, uh, you know, folks like Rand. And I think, you know, the term libertarian, I, 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 I can't speak to when exactly that came about, but classical liberalism is actually. Is, has been around for a while. It's been yeah. around for a while, and you know, in the sort of yeah. old right, uh, the, the folks who are sort of opposed to the New Deal, for right. example, like um, they Alfred J. Knock, exactly like that. Yep. Alfred J. Knock is exactly mm-hmm. what I was thinking of. They used to call themselves individualists, right? Um, and, mm-hmm. and before that, people like Locke were, of course, called liberals in the classical sense. Um, but mm-hmm. in, in many ways, conservatism, as it's sort of understood as this fusionist synthesis of, of traditionalism and classical liberalism that occurred starting in the 50s with Buckley and, and National Review is the newest political ideology. Progressivism mm-hmm. is older than conservatism. Socialism is. is certainly older than, than, than conservatism and actually predates Marx by, by some time. Um, and, and, uh, and of course, classical liberalism is too. So the, these conservatism, you know, it's, it's, it's funny because it's a uh, political philosophy that, that emphasizes tradition and, and uh, respect for our ancestors and, and uh, gratitude mm-hmm. for our inheritance, but in many ways, it's actually the newest political philosophy that features heavily in the American political lexicon. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That, 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 that's right. And yeah, to speak about the um, the, the new people who opposed the New Deal, I mean, those folks were heroic, Albert J. Knott, things like that. And in the 40s, when, uh, when American libertarianism, I say American libertarianism because, of course, a lot of folks like Chomsky, mm. Whether it be erroneously or, or, or correctly, 
label themselves libertarians, and they obviously mean the, the European sense of what a libertarian is, right? Because in, in Europe, there was a separate definition. Folks like Prodhorn and so on and so forth, who were pushing a sort of mutualist, socialistic, you know, morphing out into free markets, all that kind of stuff. They claim to be libertarian, but they're really just European sort of lexicon of libertarians. They're just Europeans. <laughs> yes, basically, yeah. Right. Uh, but uh, but American libertarianism, uh, it's generally, I think, generally thought of that it, that it, it, it sprung about in the four, in forty three, and then later the party came along and stuff like that. Uh, but I would say that, that the fusionist tradition between conservatism and that more classical liberal ideas, they have had a a broader tradition of political thinkers to draw upon than I would say American libertarianism has had. Uh, what say you about that? Yeah, it's interesting. I don't. I don't claim to be an expert on, on the libertarian tradition. I am a student of the of the American conservative tradition as someone who identifies politically as being a conservative myself. Um, mm-hmm. But certainly, it depends. You know, libertarianism itself is has its own sort of subgenres, right? So you yes. have sort of the capital L libertarians uh, who you know. Uh, generally vote for the Libertarian Party. A lot of them are disciples of Ayn Rand. Um, they're mm-hmm. stridently individualistic, not just in terms of, of of the size of government in the state, but also in many ways uh, culturally individualistic. Rand was not just a uh, an individualist in terms of the size of the state, but also in, in terms of culture. You know, she was a militant atheist, for example. And then you have mm-hmm. the sort of classical liberals and the small L libertarians who generally belong in the conservative coalition more broadly um, and often affirm many of the tr- more traditionally conservative views uh, of culture and of, of the importance of order and tradition and uh, civil society, um, but are just sort of uh, particularly focused on the size of government and emphasize that as one of the most important roles. Um, so libertarianism itself is not a monolith and certainly conservatism right. is not a monolith. Uh, but, you know, I am not... I am not a libertarian. I'm sort of a, a conservative of, of a Burkean bent. I'm a student of Kirk. I'm writing my thesis mm, next year wow. on the political philosopher Michael Oakeshott, who's a, wow. a British conservative. Um, yes, Oakeshott's but, uh, genius. Yep. Yes, yeah, he's fantastic. He, you know, was a defender of, of classical liberalism and, in many ways, uh, put an enormous em- emphasis on the importance of individual liberty. So I'm not one of these conservatives who, you know, is looking to excise libertarians from the conservative co- coalition. I think we belong together, and I think most of the time uh, on our sort of policy goals, we, we are united. You know, we are 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 advocating for a virtuous self-governing people, for individual liberty, for uh, the American constitutional tradition, and so on. Um, but I do think that there are some limits to the sort of more extravagant libertarian ideas of the nature of politics and and uh, and sort of the role of the human person in relationship to the state. What are those extravagant ideas? I'm curious. Well, I think it's, as I said, it's a matter of emphasis, right? But I think there is a genre of libertarian who is uh, sort of views the individual, the choosing individual as the preeminent consideration uh, when looking at politics. Um, and this is sort of a very mm-hmm. Lockean idea. Um, and this is something, you know, the debates between Friedman and Buckley, you could easily see the distinction between the two of you. Mm-hmm. And I think what libertarianism sometimes misses, and this isn't all libertarians, um, is, is the importance of order in our culture and of, uh, of a, a moral inheritance, uh, a respect for authority, a uh, a rich ecosystem of civic institutions that sort of form the human being and allow us to exist with one another. Because I think 
you know, the American constitution is one of the greatest political achievements in the history of human civilization, but just looking at the size of government and uh, in terms of sort of the, the constitutional limits on, on government and the natural rights that are afforded to us misses the importance of having a virtuous people that are capable of freedom. Not every group of people, not every polity is capable of being self-governing and free. Freedom doesn't just sort of, you know, Ronald Reagan famously said, freedom isn't passed down in the bloodstream. It has to be taught and renewed in every generation. So the what it means to be a free people, I think, is a very, you have to have a very rich understanding of how a people can be free um, and what the sort of personal responsibility and sense of patriotic duty and obligation to one another that is required for a people to enjoy freedom. And I think sometimes the sort of uh, sort of totalizing focus on issues around the size of the state misses the importance of nurturing our civic institutions and our moral inheritance and our patriotism and our sense of obligation and duty mm-hmm. to one another that is required for us to enjoy the blessings of liberty afforded to us by the United States. Do you mean to say, Nate, that um, this is an interesting proposition here. Do you mean to say that you have to teach someone how to be free? I do. Yeah, I think that's that's it's, it's an interesting way to put it. But the you know really? there's a famous quote um, which is uh, uh, goes I think it's Deirdre McCloskey, but I can't remember. But it's uh, it goes uh, every ge- every generation Western civilization is invaded by barbarians. We call them children, <laughs> right? Which is the point is that children aren't sort of born into a free society with the preconditions required to be responsible, self-governing, patriotic people who are capable of being free. You need to have a rich ecosystem of traditions and customs and things that bind us together. What Abraham Lincoln called the mystic cords of memory and understanding of of what it means to be American and our relationship to one another that allows us to live in a society where, where government doesn't order everything. It's really important that we live in a society where we aren't sort of ordered around by central planners. And of course, that's an achievement that needs to be protected. I just think that the, the sort of it, the, the totalizing focus on the government misses the importance of all of these other things, the mediating institutions that create the enormous space between the individual and the state, which are really the foundation of any free society. And this is sort of an insight of someone like Edmund Burke. Um, and it's not at all antithetical to classical liberalism uh, and, and, and even libertarianism and, and sort of the, the tradition of, of advocacy for liberty. I think nine times out of 10, I'll agree with libertarians when it comes to policy. Um, but I do think as a matter of sort of political philosophy, it's an important difference, which needs to be sort of called out and acknowledged. And the tension between libertarians and conservatives has always existed, and it's important that we keep having this discussion. Oh, of course, it has indeed always existed. Oh, this proposition of yours is quite interesting because I'll just I'll be forthright. I am I am a libertarian. I am a radical individualist in the in in the vein of in, in the vein of someone like uh, uh, and someone like Emerson, uh, uh, and so. I myself, or Lysander Spooner, who was a, who was a, I believe he was an anarchist, and I know he was an anarchist thinker. Uh, although I don't, I'm not an anarchist, but I, I, I agree a lot of with a lot of his propositions on natural rights and so on and so forth. And so this idea that we have to be taught to be free is seems a little bit of an anathema to the tradition that I that I personally hold hold dear, because if freedom is number a, if freedom is a inviolable, and b um, in, in, integral, inherent to the condition of human beings. And C, 
uh, on on the precipice of those two previous assumptions, embodied and manifest through the foundations that we already have, then it's simply a matter of maturing into it, as opposed to being taught that you have to be free. Uh, for example, you babies and so on and so forth, infants, they mature into speaking, right? There, is, uh, there, there are certainly examples they have of people speaking around them, but they mature into it. It happens almost, almost spontaneously. Uh, they mature into walking. Of course, sometimes they are guided, but there are, uh, the, but babies and infants fall down all the time when they, when they, when they walk. And sometimes no matter how much you teach them, they will still fall down, but they mature into it. I think freedom is a natural condition of the self, of the human being that no one Absolutely no one could teach you how to be free unless they would, A, be contradicting the essence, the, 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 the subtext, so to speak, of, the, of, the, of, of your freedom, and B, trying to assert upon you a sort of social view of how you should exercise your freedom. In those two, in those two instances, I certainly do think you could, quote unquote, teach someone how to be free, but they wouldn't be much free at all. They would basically just be pupils. And in the natural condition of the human being, the only one you're a pupil to, I think, is time and experience, not human beings. This is, I think, the dividing line between conservatism and libertarianism. And you've, you've mentioned this before. I, 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 but in my view, I, I, go a little, I go a step further than a lot of libertarians. I think freedom is a spiritual value that is waiting to be realized, not, and that is consistently perfected by the individual, not something instilled into them by institutions. Because if it's instilled into them by institutions, guess what? Institutions can easily deprive them of it. So that's my personal idea of freedom. What say you? No, it's a very, it's a very good articulation of, of the libertarian view of freedom. And I, you're, you're, I think you're absolutely right when you say this is sort of the dividing line between libertarians and uh, conservatives of a more traditionalist bent. Um, I think that the you you know you used uh, the language of, of the natural rights tradition or all, right, which is the idea yes, that we absolutely. are naturally free, which I completely agree with. I am a hundred percent comfortable with our Lockean Lockean inheritance. It obviously was um, a, a major influence on the founding fathers, and I think I'm in no small part the task of the American conservative is to conserve the philosophy of the American founding. Um, Indeed, what I would disagree with you on is the idea that. The, because we are naturally free, there's no role for institutions in sort of forming us. I think the 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 Lockean argument for the natural state of the free human being is taken in the context of a state of nature, right? We are naturally mm -hmm. free yes, because we've been in a state of nature, but nobody wants yes. to live in a state of nature. And you know, certainly Locke was uh, and and Hobbes before that were, were talking about government as the the sort of leviathan that rescued us from the state of nature. So the idea mm -hmm. that we're naturally free because we come from this abstract idea of a state of nature doesn't mean that we should be looking for something that approximates a state of nature in the sort of Platonic, Platonic ideal of the good oh, society. Of course not. We're imbued of course with, not. we're of imbued with, not. right. Of course, I know you don't, you, you just, you, you agree with me there, but the, the idea is that we're imbued with freedom because we begin as individuals in this anarchic state, but that doesn't include the necessity of using that freedom responsibly and that freedom sure. being sort of directed towards human flourishing and the importance of civic institutions sure. and uh, well. a sort of a binding, culture 
which holds us together, which allows us to not only be free and be endowed with the rights that are natural, but on top of that, flourish, right? It's, it's two different things and they don't have to be inimical to one another. But I think sometimes the sort of libertarian view that you articulated treats them as, as in tension with one another. Well, you mentioned two very interesting things there. You said to be free and then to flourish. So you're partitioning those two states of being from each other as to say that they are separate. Although I think that one, I think that freedom itself is inherent is, is inherently something that is propitious to the cultivation of flour, uh, for flourishing. You cannot have one without the other. They are not mutually exclusive, in my opinion. Um, but you don't but you mentioned in a state of nature, right? Yes, yes, but but here's the thing. Uh, I, I never I never disputed the onus that many cultural institutions have to preserve and sort of instill a basic, a very basic ethical sense of order into the protection of the uh, of the extensions of our individuality, uh, as 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 Bastiat would say, life, liberty, and property, and 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 as 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 Locke would say, the similar, similar thing as well. But I do indeed dispute the role of institutions to go a step further and try to instill cultural values into us uh, that are not in that are not directly related to the preservation of our freedom. So, for example, I don't mind if an institution teaches people that non-aggression is propitious to the advancement of, of social relationships and it's propitious to the advancement of the human being of the self. That's fine. I do have a problem if, if traditions try to instill religion into folks because you don't necessarily need religion to be moral or to be good or so on and so forth. And I'm, saying, and I'm saying this as a Christian. I am a Christian. I don't want the state to be doing that. I don't want the state to be trying to also instill other arbitrary values into people. Uh, that are just superfluous and are in, are in excess of the desire of a culture to remain relevant or to obtain power over another culture. If, if we're going to have a culture at all, we should have a culture that is solely predicated around non-aggression and nothing more. That's my view. You and our conservatives, of course, disagree with that. You need to have. You need to be patriotic. You need to believe in your country. But I think I can do just fine respecting my my neighbors and their and their property. And with that spiritual value of freedom and reconciliation and not at all giving a damn about my country, theoretically. Well, it's, what do you, think? you know, it's interesting. It's actually, I don't think conservatives, or I'll speak for myself, I don't actually disagree uh, with a significant portion of what you said. I think it's my interpretation of uh, what you're saying leads me to different political conclusions. So you said the right. the that you don't, you're okay with civic institutions teaching us the values needed for being No, free. I'm, Excuse no, me, well, yeah, I'm not. Yeah, <laughs> I'm okay with civic institutions teaching only, nothing else, right. only non-aggression, only that. Okay. Nothing I, more, sure. nothing less. I think you said the, correct me if this is a mischaracterization of what you're saying, but the, the civic institutions- Well, actually- it's, me, Civic institutions have a role until they, they exceed the sort of basic role of instilling values in people which are required for them to be free individuals. Well, right? about, I think I think civic institutions- no, actually, that's actually entirely wrong. Okay. I think that – so civic institutions, would you define that as an institution that is ran by a force external to the individual, right? A, a, a force that is sort of encompasses a broad variety of people. We're not talking about – we're not talking about families. We're not talking about parents, right? We're talking about things that are a little bit beyond that, correct? Well, I think institutions, you know, it's it's a it's a word that encompasses a lot of different things. But the family is certainly an institution, for example. Well, yeah. I, I, well, so I, I think – 
I think that, well, I'm not really entirely sure if one needs a family to be good. I, I think that the family is oftentimes overrated. To be honest, to be quite honest with you, uh, I'm not entirely <laughs> is, sure if one yeah, needs a family. Certainly the break between uh, conservatives <laughs> and liberal. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure one needs, one needs a family to be, to, to be free. But I do think basic installation of values, even if it happens on an individual level, because it really does happen on an individual level. Society, as many conservatives think of it, is, I think, a fiction. I'm not entirely sure society is this massive organism that can be accounted for, prodded, and measured, and then cultivated into something you want it to be. Of course not. No, society is this, Nathan. It's me and you talking right now. Society begins when I pick up my phone and call someone. I am society. I form the stem of society. Institutions or whatever, all that stuff is external. It's excess. In my view, of course, I could be wrong. This external is excess, but I, society flows from my mouth from my sentiments, from my spirits, from my blessings. And of course, this is the, the divide. Conservatives believe society is a little bit bigger than that. Something that's outside of yourself. It's a community. But in, in my view, the community is really nothing without the individuals that, cons- that, that consist of it, number one. And therefore, the, and, and, and since every individual is very different, multivariate in their interests, personalities, and beliefs, you cannot have a core community value that goes beyond the, the, the direct flourishing and success of individuals, i.e. freedom. Anything beyond freedom becomes tyrannical, becomes obtrusive, and just becomes plain excessive. That's my view. Now, some folks think that communities have a role in teaching and teaching uh and teaching people how, you know how to like that marriage is important how, how to how to how to you know uh, go about certain things in life and i don't think that's definitely that's correct at all but i would i would assume many conservatives would have that same belief that communities sort of build the man and make them into something that's great right the church or what have you the church the uh, uh the, the the community association whatever have you you see, you see what i'm saying yeah i think so the the difference is First of all, it's worth emphasizing, again, the similarities and why I continue to believe that libertarians and, and conservatives, at least in the Anglo-American context, belong in the same political coalition, which is oh, that I, we, I agree, do too. I do we agree fundamentally that individual liberty is enormously important. It's a significant it part of uh, not only as, as a precedent to human flourishing, but also um, as sort of a part of our, our political, cultural, and moral inheritance. Um, the difference, I think, uh, from the with the where the conservative view diverges from the libertarian view is it uh, it, it grants the importance of, of individual liberty and understanding a lot of political questions in terms of the choosing autonomous individual. But it also right. says there are there are limits to that view because there are certain aspects of the nature of politics and the nature of society writ large that can only be understood in collective terms or at the very least can't be fully right. understood and articulated in individual terms. And to use sort of a... Uh, to be cheeky and to use a, a famous uh, libertarian thinker, uh, Friedrich Hayek, right? Hayek wrote uh, mm. th- that famous essay, The Knowledge Problem, um, where he talks yes. about the spontaneous order. And Hayek was, mm-hmm. you can't deny that Hayek was an individualist, but he was talking, and this was him describing not only the market, but sort of the way that a, a dynamic free liberal society works in general um, as this sort of almost mystical thing that arises, which isn't any the, due to the action of any one individual or even can, can't really be understood as a collection of individuals, but is something beyond what can be understood in explicitly individualist terms. And that I think is, you know, you might not like the word society to describe it, but there's something- Or any terms really. There is is something that exists which isn't understood as being a function of the state or as a function of the individual 
and it's difficult to articulate it and it doesn't sort of uh, lend itself to sort of rational description in the way that sort of like natural rights doctrine does, but it exists and it's, and it's fundamentally important. And I think that's where conservatives and libertarians often diverge. Oh, I think that's correct. Well, listen, Nate, we have, it's been, it's been a very nice time. This is a very enlightening discussion. Your work is brilliant. I mean, everyone you need to go out and read his work. It's brilliant stuff. Uh, I appreciate you coming here and uh, not, co- not going into the furnace a little bit, but just like being able to willing to express your views and things like that. So it's, uh, it's just, uh, it's a pleasure, man. Anything else to say before we go? No, Christian, thanks for having me. I, uh, I, this is fun. All right. Thank you guys so much for listening and I will see you guys on the flip side.